Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Ron Benningby, CEO and founder of Uplink, a credit assessment and scoring platform for small business lenders that's raised over $5 million in funding. Ron, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thanks for having me, Brett. Excited to be here. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building there, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, so I'm a serial entrepreneur. This is my fifth, and as I've been told, it's my last startup. I've had a couple of exits, successful ones. I've also had a horrific flop. So by no means am I perfect in any way. And uh, like I said, Uplink is my fifth startup and my most passionate to date. And um, hopefully we're going to be able to impact the lives of many around the world with it. Well, hey, we have to zoom in there on the flop. So tell us about it. What went wrong there and, and what did you learn from that? Yeah, you know, that was really interesting. It had come right after a very successful 12-year run where me and my partner at the time, we we literally built a business from nothing, didn't raise any money and just did it organically over that time. So I came out of that, I would tell you, probably feeling a little too good about myself, like a little cocky, a uh, little arrogant, made some mistakes with that sort of mindset. And, you know, the biggest mistake I would tell you I made was we were building a SaaS tech platform and I had partnered with a company out of the UK for a tech stack. And I ended up cutting a deal with them that was incredibly favorable for me and the company. And it was, it was just so heavily one-sided. And what that did was, this is, I guess, 2010, 2011, mm -hmm. it was really taxing on them financially. And it was still in that period of the financial crisis, certainly in Europe. They were based in the UK and they became insolvent. And what I realized, and it ended up costing us the business, we closed it down. It was such a one-sided deal that creating such a one-sided deal where there's a clear winner and loser ultimately creates a lose-lose, not a win-lose and certainly not a win-win. So lesson learned, I've tried to kind of take that mentality going forward. So today when I negotiate, you know, with suppliers and, you know, they'll, they'll give me a quote on something, you know, at times I'm, I might even increase it because if both parties don't win, then ultimately both parties lose. So I'd say those were my biggest takeaways. Nice. And I love that. You know, on my end, when I work with companies and we're uh, you know, going through the negotiations, when they start to just grind us down lower and lower, it just creates a lot of resentment. And on my end, I just think like, this isn't a good way to start a relationship. You know, we're going to start off on the wrong foot for sure. So very interesting that you have that perspective and that experience as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, also something I'd read in a previous interview is that you were an immigrant. So do you want to talk us through maybe some of that journey and, and what that was like for you growing up? Yeah, I know. So I am an immigrant. My family migrated to Canada in the early 70s. We were poor. Like we had zero dollars. My dad was 
baking bread at night to put food on the table. And he he went to a bank in 1973. And Brett, by the way, I know it's hard to believe because I look very young. I appreciate you acknowledging that, by the way. So he went to a bank in 73 and he asked him for a small business loan, to which the banker told him, Mr. Benegbi, you really don't qualify for how the bank lends to small business. However, I believe in people. And here's $5,000. And my dad was able to take that money in 1973, start a small business, which then became a medium-sized business. And my mom actually followed suit about a year later, just knocking on people's doors and the winter of 74 in Toronto. And I can tell you that's not a pretty picture and asking people, do you want to sell your home? And she built a, a nice, healthy real estate services business out of that small business. So for me, small business is very personal and it really ties back to my immigrant roots and how I manage businesses and how I work for businesses. My my successes and my failures have come as a small business owner, which really ties in incredibly well to Uplink and our mission and what we're all about and what we're trying to do in terms of impacting the lives of small businesses globally. That's amazing. And we're going to dive deeper into Uplink here in a moment, but a couple of quick questions that we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick. First one, what CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Yeah, so I don't think I'm overly creative there. I'm going to tell you it's Steve Jobs, so you're probably rolling your eyes on me on that one. But, you know, I followed him for years and years and years, and I guess, you know, not a millennial here, so it's been a few years. And what I really admired about him was, I remember it's when they he launched the, I think it was the iPad. And he said something like, you know, if you give this tech to a 10-year-old child and you don't say anything and you let the child just play around with it. And intuitively, it makes sense to the child. At that point, I know I have magic. I know I've done something special. And you know, for me, that sort of really embodied how I wanted to build a company and especially build product within a company in terms of just keeping it as simple as possible, where whether you're a, a 10-year-old child, an 80-year-old in the latter part of your life or, you know, sort of a, in the middle of your life, you could understand how to use a product at its basic core. So, you know, that's what I'll share with you. It is Steve Jobs, so I'm sure you get that answer a lot. But I'm, you know, answering as truthful as I can. Yeah, I'd rather someone answer tersely than just like make up some random, you know, local CEO that I haven't heard of. So right. no worries at all. And we've had heard Steve Jobs a few times. I'm sure you have. <laughs> we were talking about books. I'm not going to let you uh, say the Steve Jobs book here. What book is of the greatest impact on you? And, and this can be a business book or just a book that really influenced how you view the world from a personal perspective. That's a, that's a great question. For me, what jumps off the table when you ask that question, Brett, is a book that came out in the early 2000s called Good to Great from Jim Collins. And, you know, I don't know if you know that one or, yeah. So, I mean, for me, it talks about just a certain kind of leadership. And it's a leadership, candidly, that I aspire to attain. I don't think I'm there. <laughs> and I often just refer back to it and, and read up on it. But I love about how Mr. Collins talks about, you know, it's not just about bringing in the right people. 
and creating the right culture, but it's also ensuring that they're in the right roles to ultimately garner success for the company. And, you know, it was written before the financial crisis. So it's interesting reading that book now when they're talking about all of these businesses that, you know, some of them didn't make it past 2007, 2008. But, you know, whether it's specifically a company or not, it's just the ideology behind it. And the messaging behind it is something for me that's extremely inspirational and aspirational. And it's something that as CEO of Uplink, I'm trying to get to every day. And, you know, hopefully when this is done, I'll be told that, hey, yeah, I got there, or at least I I did my best. Nice. I love that. Such a good classic business book as well. And I think that's the perfect segue for us to now talk about Uplink. So I think we covered there, you know, it sounds like the early, early origin story of where this you know, desire to serve small businesses came from. But take us back to the early days as you started to think through you know, what this company would look like and, and what the product would look like and how you would bring it to market. Yeah. So it goes back to if we look at small businesses in general, let's look at them. You know, the mom and pop shop at the corner of Maine and Fort. Small business has always been an underserved segment within financial services. Nobody would argue or challenge you on that. At least no one's ever done that with me to date. And it's always been difficult for a small business owner to get a fair shake. But over the last few years, with the impact the pandemic has had and the devastation it's had on the small business owner, and now as we go into these uncertain economic times and conditions, the opportunity for a small business owner to get access to fair and ethical credit has never been more difficult. So for us, for me, it all started with that vision in 2021, early 21, was how can I convince a small business lender to say yes more often than they're saying no. So not asking them to change the way they think about credit, not asking them to change the way they think about risk, because doing any of that creates a lot of friction and that's definitely not a good thing. But showing them through data, through science, by providing them with empirical evidence, showing them, hey, this business that you said no to, you actually should have said yes within the context of your existing credit environment, and this is why, and then getting them to apply that. That's sort of the the background and the vision behind Uplink. And I was very fortunate to having been introduced to my co-founder and we were able to deliver such a solution accordingly. And could you talk us through how your credit assessments work and how they're different and how they're able to generate a different answer to that loan question of, you know, do we lend or do we not lend? What's happening behind the scenes and and what types of data are you looking at to make that determination or that recommendation? Yeah, so it's a bit of an unusual story. And I'm not going to use the word unique because, Brett, all startups are unique and we're all special and, you know, (laughs) we should all be given some credit because we're a startup. But it is an unusual story. And what I mean by that is you don't have two guys here who have spent the last two years in a basement building a product that they think makes sense for the market, raising some money and now going to the market with this, you know, incredibly new product for the market and claiming for it to be so great. In fact, you have the opposite of that. 
So if you look at the way lenders have traditionally lent, and when I say lenders, small business lenders, think a bank, a credit union, an online lender. They've typically asked the small business owner, give me three years financials. So give me your financial statements and um, let me run a bureau score on you. And then I'm going to aggregate all of that information and make a credit decision. Well, we live in a different world today than we did even three years ago. And most small businesses today, certainly in the U.S., do they even have three years financials? And if they do, are they accurate? Do they have a great credit score? So going back to your question, what is it that we do? Well, we go beyond just traditional financial bank statements and credit bureaus, which, by the way, I'm not discounting. They provide value. But we look at the entire ecosystem around the small business. So we look at environmental information. We look at market information. We look at community information. We look at things like if you're a restaurant, what kind of foot traffic are you getting, not just across your street, but two blocks down? What kind of cell phone usage is going on in your area? Because that has a direct correlation to financial performance. And going back to why is this such an unusual approach? Because, you know, candidly, there have been a lot of companies in the past that have used what we call alternative data to evaluate credit. So what makes this an unusual story is it's not something that's been built over two years. In fact, it's the opposite. We have taken a technology that had been in market for over 15 years, served some of the biggest and smallest financial institutions in the world, small business lenders, have produced data sets that have met every regulatory requirement in that local region, has connectivity to over 10,000 sources of data on small businesses in 150 countries, and in the aggregate, has been a part of over $1.4 trillion in lending underwriting. And we've been repurposing this sort of older legacy technology into this modern-day fintech called Uplink. And the narrative is something that, like I said, is unusual. So, you know, when you talk about a company that's less than two years old, but yet has this story, and more importantly, has the science and data to support the story, it becomes quite compelling and it has really resonated with the market at such an early stage for us. And how did that work then exactly? Did you buy that technology? Was that a buyout of an existing company or are you building on top of another company? Great question. Yeah, no, it was definitely a purchase. So what we did was my co-founder had built this platform over a 15, now 16 year window. We simply carved out the technology. We put it into a new company called Nuco. Look how creative I was, rebranded to Uplink. And Uplink acquired the asset. So it didn't buy my co-founder's previous company. So we didn't buy like contracts and, you know, any of that other stuff. We simply bought technology, rebranded under Uplink. Uplink now owns the technology, has all the rights to it, and accordingly, all of the data that comes with that. And we've been able to go to market accordingly. And that's why it's a bit of an unusual story. Mm -hmm. No. That's super interesting. 
And the 1.4 trillion, that was over that 15 year period, right? I'm guessing that's not right. the last two years. No, no, there's no way. And that's why when people say, I don't understand, you're like to your startup, 1.4 trillion, 10,000 data sources. It doesn't match. Of course not. I could not. One of the things that it got me so excited when I originally started talking to Pat, my co-founder, was I said to myself, oh my God, for me to even, to try to replicate what is in front of me here, what he's done, this would take at least 10 years. This isn't something that I could just throw money at and two years later be in market with something. So yeah, no, it's been done over 15 years and it's been tested, validated, approved by banking regulators, not just in the US and Canada, but all over the world in the different markets it served. So it's quite a powerful narrative. That makes a lot more sense now. When I was doing research yesterday <laughs> for this, I was like, wow, a two-year-old startup, they have Wells Fargo, Chase, Citibank, every bank you can think of. I had a lot of questions about you know, what you were able to do in that two years and, and what you were... Uh, <laughs> what you no, were there's no chance. There's, there's, no chance. <laughs> there's no chance on earth. If anyone told you they're doing this in two or even five years, Brett, I would say they're not being truthful with you. No, this was, this was done over 15 years. It wasn't done overnight. There was a lot of sweat poured into it, a lot of dollars poured into it. And accordingly, that's why we've had the kind of excitement in the market where we've partnered with the likes of Equifax and creating an innovation lab so soon out of the gate. They never do that with early stage startups. And I can give you more and more stories like that, but because we have the science over such an extended period of time and the data behind it, it has really resonated with the market as a whole. Yeah, I can see that. And this is just so different from that typical Silicon Valley story, right? Of you know, two 20-year-old Stanford dropouts who have an idea for a problem they can solve and, and go get rich from. So this sounds yeah. like a very, very different story. Completely different. You're talking about a couple of old dudes who have taken a legacy technology and are bringing it to market under a new brand. So it's, a, like I said, it's a highly unusual story. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now, talking about you know country to country, so I can see how the US and Canada are probably pretty similar, but what about when you go into other countries like Europe or Africa or South America? How does your algorithm and scoring have to adapt on a country-by-country basis? Or does it not have to adapt? Well, the answer is absolutely, it has to adapt. But again, if you look at the technology itself, remember over 15 years, connectivity into over 10,000 different data sources, it has powered program in just about every Western economy you can think of. So, you know, one of our initial beta customers, not paid, we did five closed sort of beta projects. Four were in the U.S., but one was in India. We actually have more data in India than the government of India. And we were able to show it to the customer. And again, that's because it's been done in the past 
over a period of time. And of course, the data where we pull from, how we pull, the markets are incredibly unique to that local region. So of course, having a restaurant in Mumbai, you know, the data is going to look a lot different than having a restaurant in Manhattan or San Francisco. So absolutely, it attenuates to the local market. But interestingly enough, part of what we pull in any local environment is international data. So we're pulling sources from like the World Bank, the IFC, the International Finance Committee, like all of these sort of global market indexes, because all of that impacts local environment, i.e. the war in Eastern Europe certainly impacts my local mom and pop shop here in downtown Toronto or can impact it with respect to supply chain and goods and and logistics and all of that stuff. So it's both local sources, international sources, but clearly attenuated to that very specific region, to your point. And what does the competitive landscape look like today? I'm guessing it's divided into two buckets of the legacy providers or kind of the status quo there, and then the upstarts or you know, maybe the, the disruptors who are trying to come in. So can you just talk us through what that landscape looks like? Yeah, I, I would actually break it down into kind of two buckets. The first bucket is status quo. So what does that mean? Well, you know, let's look at our customers are these small business lenders, so banks, credit unions, etc. They've been using FICO scores. They've been using experience scores or Moody scores. And so they just want to keep doing the same thing they've been doing since the dawn of age, and they don't want to do anything else. So that's kind of the first competitive landscape is that status quo. The second part to that is, you know, I wouldn't say so much new entrants because the barrier to entry is enormous, right? Like it's not something you can just go raise a million dollars and build in two years, like you and I have already discussed. But what you've seen is you've seen companies who have been at it for some time, who who are starting to make some headway, who, you know, narratives are a little similar to ours. And certainly there's a couple of those out there as well. And I would tell you that's a good thing because at the end of the day, I support them and I hope they do well and I hope they feel the same way about us because at the end of the day, it's the status quo that's the biggest thorn in my side, Brad. It's getting a lender to think differently while staying within their own credit environment. So I'll give you an example. We did one of our tests we did with an online lender, actually San Diego-based. Maybe that's why San Diego is always in my mind. And they were, on average, declining 95% of all their loan applicants. And basically, after I think we did it, it was just about four months, just under four months, we were able to show them within the context of their existing credit process and credit workflows and how they thought about risk in general, they were able to go from a, basically a 95% decline rate to a 60 to 70% approval rate within the exact same credit framework. So all of a sudden, if this one lender is able to now say, hey, you know what, all of these declines, I should have said yes to uh, a good majority of them. You're now getting working capital into the hands of, you know, the local mom and pop shop at Main and 4th Street. 
and you're contributing to the economy, both locally, nationally, and inherently globally. So for me, and I'm not sure if you know any of the competitors would agree, but the status quo is the biggest barrier, the biggest competitive barrier we have while we're speaking to a potential customer. Yeah, and something you mentioned there is, you know, you have to convince these large institutions to think differently. How do you do that? How do you convince an organization to think in a different way if that's what they've been doing for a very long time? Because you have to essentially come in and say, I guess in a nice way, you're wrong, here's a better way to do it. But how do you communicate that without insulting them and and scaring them off? Well, yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, it's inherently some you can't convince, but what we've seen is it appears to be that it's the right market, the right time today for a number of reasons. One, there are all kinds of regulatory requirements coming down the pipe, specifically with a section, it's called 1071. Frank, where the regulator is now, as of next month, going to be asking any regulated lender in the US to prove to them that they, the way they lend to small business is without bias and they are conforming to fair lending practices. Well, I can tell you that just about every FI I've spoken to and, you know, there's conferences all the time, they're, they're petrified about this because they know that their models don't conform. So certainly that has played a role. But another part to this is, you know, we're working with a, a very large bank right now where the business line has come and said, look, we are under tremendous pressure all the way up to the CEO level to grow our business book. However, we are not allowed to change our risk models. So how are we going to grow? So you're telling us to grow our business, but you can't take more risk. So this is where a solution like ours comes in and says, look, you don't have to take more risk. In fact, we can lower your charge-off rates But here is evidence through the use of data, through the use of all of these insights we've derived over 15 years, not over two years, over 15 years to convince you why you should have said yes more often. It allows them to increase their low books. So we're seeing the market getting really excited about this. That's not to say that everyone we speak to says, where do I sign? I don't want to, you know, mislead in any way. But I will tell you this, I've been selling to FIs for, you know, over 25 years, and I've never seen some FIs, and I mean some large FIs, move as quickly as they've moved with us and get as excited about some of the things that we're talking about the way they have in such a short amount of time. So I hope I've answered your question. It's not a one-size-fits-all for sure, but it appears to be the right solution at the right time. Makes a lot of sense. But I guess there has to be a pretty big incentive there too, right? Like banks want to lend. That's how they make money. They just have to do it safely so they get their money back and are able to charge the interest. So they have an incentive to really explore technologies that enable them to lend more, right? A hundred percent. And with our model, you know what we do, Brett? We actually say to a lender, listen, this is something my co-founder says. I don't say this. I, he actually said this on stage at Finnovate in New York in the fall, I was like starting to sweat when he said this. He will say in front of like the CEO of a, a small business banking division of a bank, don't believe anything we say. 
don't believe any fintech. All fintechs are liars. And I'm like sitting there sweating as he's talking like this. It's like, okay, I, I know your point. We get your point. But I mean, that's being uh, a little sort of <laughs> aggressive. The point we're trying to make is we go into a potential customer and we say, look, let us prove it to you. Everybody knocks on your door and tells you what they've done is the best. Look, don't believe us, but let us prove it to it. Let us do a proof of concept, a back test. Let us take information. Let's say, let us go back three years, five years. Give us all of the, the declines that you've had. Let us show you how we would have assessed those declines. And let us prove to you that this works. And in doing so, we will also come back with a very comprehensive business case, which can go all the way up to your CEO, which will show you how you're going to ultimately significantly increase your net revenue. And there's all kinds of complicated formulas that go into that. But that's the approach we take. And when these banks hear that, they're saying, hey, wait a second. So it's like a try before you buy. That's what it is. It's like, yeah, where do we sign? Sounds great. Wow, that's awesome. I'm sure you're very popular then at the conference of a bunch of other fintech companies as you were saying that. <laughs> <laughs> All fintechs are special, Brad. All full <laughs> <are> special. <laughs> now, I'm sure in your journey, you've encountered a couple of challenges. If we had to pick one that you faced and then overcame, what would that challenge be and how'd you overcome it? Yeah, I would tell you that this one also jumps off the page. Without question, it was team. It was team. It was, you know, the initial founding team. Now, when I originally raised some money, we were like beyond pre-revenue. We had a PowerPoint slide deck and it was bad. That's what we had. That's all I had. PowerPoint deck and it was it was bad. And I didn't really have, my co-founder wasn't around at that time. He came shortly thereafter. I was part of the journey. So basically, over a period of, I would say, the first 12 to 18 months, it wasn't just about bringing in the right co-founder, which I'm convinced I did, but it was also adding to that team in, in product and tech, as you know, and building it out. And that was a struggle, made some mistakes, not with the co-founder, thank thankfully, but, you know, in terms of other tech hires and in terms of some consultants, spent some money, lost some money, I would say wasted some money, not purposely, of course, but learned along the way. And I would tell you that it was really tough. And, you know, our biggest investor at the time, not any longer, but they believed in me from day one as a fund that in New York City. And they said, look, we wrote the initial check, but we're not going to write another check until you can prove to us that you can bring this team together. And, you know, thankfully, I would tell you for the last eight months or so, 10 months even, we have what I consider to be an incredibly stable environment where the team has just come together, gelled and really meshed as this cohesive unit. And um, it enables me now to focus in other parts of the business, not just on building out the right team. And let's zoom out into the future. So let's go to three years from today. What's the company look like? And, and what's the impact you've had both for the financial institutions that you work with and of course, the SMB businesses that you're targeting? 
Yeah, I'll tell you, just simply stated, if three years from now, I'm not the CEO of this company, and this company has not just succeeded, but we bring in a new CEO, and she or he is able to accelerate it even further, and the company just keeps going. To me, that's success. And that goes back to good to great. If this company can sustain itself on its own without any one individual, and certainly me as a CEO, then we've achieved our goal. In terms of how do you quantify, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to throw a number like we have, you know, 27 bank customers and we're generating $100 billion a year in annual revenue, like, You know, to me, if we're able to show conclusively that we have positively impacted the lives of millions of families around the world and whatever that means, and I don't know what that means today, Brett, I'll probably know better what that means down the road than to me, coupled with what I said earlier, that would be success. Amazing. I love it. Ron, I'd love to keep you on and ask you another 20 or 30 questions here, but I know we are a fun time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, uplink.co. So U-P-L-I-N-Q dot C-O, not dot com dot C-O. They can also follow us on LinkedIn. They can reach out to me on uh, LinkedIn. I'm a LinkedIn troll, and I am the only Ron Benegby in the world on LinkedIn. If you put in Ron Benegby, it's only me. So I'm pretty easy to find that way as long as you know how to spell my name. Awesome. Well, we'll have that spelling right here on the uh, on the show notes of the episode and in the title. So they'll be able to find it. Ron, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and talk about what you're building and, and this vision. This is all super exciting and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. Thanks so much, Brad. I appreciate your time. All right. Keep in touch. 